A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. Better men than you have tried, snarled Clinton Watt. I quote paragraph 4, section 91 of the semantic revision to the Constitution, said saboteur extraordinary George X. McKee. The need for obstructive processes in government having been established as one of the chief safeguards for human rights, the question of immunities must be defined with extreme precision. McKee sat across a glistening desk from the intergalactic government secretary of sabotage, Clinton Watt. An air of tension filled the green-walled office, carrying over into the screen view behind Watt, which showed an expanse of the system government's compound and people scurrying about their morning business with a sense of urgency. Watt, a small man who appeared to crackle with suppressed energy, passed a hand across his shaven head. All right, he said in a suddenly tired voice. This is the only secretariat of government that's never immune from sabotage. You, know, you satisfy the legalities by quoting the law. Now, do your damnedest. McKee, whose bulk and fat features usually gave him the appearance of a grandfatherly toad, glowered like a gnome dragon. His mane of red hair appeared to dance with inner flame. Damnedest? he snapped. You think I came in here to try to unseat you? You think that? And McKee thought, let's hope he thinks that. Stop the act, McKee, Watt said. We both know you're eligible for this chair, he patted the arm of his chair, and we both know the only way you can eliminate me and qualify yourself for the appointment is to overcome me with a masterful sabotage. Well, McKee, I've sat here for more than 18 years. <laughs> Another five months and it'll be a new record. Do your damnedest. I'm waiting. I came in here for only one reason, McKee said. I want to report on the search for saboteur extraordinary Napoleon Bildoon. McKee sat back wondering, if Watt knew my real purpose here, would he act just this way? Perhaps. The man had been behaving oddly since the start of this interview, but it was difficult to determine real motive when dealing with a fellow member of the Bureau of Sabotage. Cautious interest quickened Watt's bony face. He wet his lips with his tongue, and it was obvious he was asking himself if this were more of an elaborate ruse. But McKee had been assigned the task of searching for the missing agent, Bill Doon, and it was just possible. Have you found him? Watt asked. I'm not sure, McKee said. He ran his fingers through his red hair. Bill Doon's a pan specchie, you know. For disruption's sake, Watt exploded, I know who and what my own agents are. But we take care of our own, and when one of our best people just drops from sight, I mean, what's this about not being sure? The panspecchi are a curious race of creatures, McKee said. Just because they've taken on humanoid shape, we tend to forget the five-phase life cycle. My questioning of the other panspecchi in the Bureau has had to be circumspect, of course, McKee said. But I did follow one lead clear to Acus. And? McKee brought a white vial from his copious jacket, scattered a metallic powder on the desktop. Watt pushed himself back from the desk eyeing the powder with suspicion. He took a cautious sniff, smelled chaff, the quick-scribe powder. Still, it's just chaff, McKee said, and he thought, if he buys that, I may get away with this. So scribe it, Watt said. Concealing his elation, McKee held a chaff memory stick over the dusted surface. A broken circle with arrows pointing to a right-hand flow appeared in the chaff. At each break in the circle stood a symbol, in one place the panspecchi character for ego, then the delta for fifth gender, and finally the three lines that signified the dormant crash triplets. 
McKee pointed to the fifth gender delta. I've seen a panspecchi in this position who looks a bit like Bill Doon and appears to have some of his mannerisms. There's no identity response from the creature, of course. Well, you know how the quasi-feminine fifth gender reacts. Don't ever let that amorous attitude fool you, Watt warned. In spite of your nasty disposition, I wouldn't want to lose you into a panspecchi crash. Bill Doon wouldn't rob a fellow agent's identity, McKee said. He pulled at his lower lip, feeling an abrupt uncertainty. Here, of course, was the most touchy part of the whole scheme. If it was Bill Doon. Did you ever meet this group's ego holder? Watt asked, and his voice betrayed real interest. No, McKee said. But I think the ego single of this panspecchi is involved with the tax watchers. McKee waited, wondering if Watt would rise to the bait. I've never heard of an ego change being forced onto a panspecchi, Watt said in a musing tone. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. If those tax watcher do-gooders found Bill Doon sabotaging their efforts, and Hmm. Then Bill Doon was after the tax watchers, McKee said. Watt scowled. McKee's question was in an extreme bad taste. Senior agents, unless joined on a project or where the information was volunteered, didn't snoop openly into the work of their fellows. Left hand and right hand remained mutually ignorant in the Bureau of Sabotage, and for good reason. Unless Watt stared speculatively at his saboteur extraordinary. McKee shrugged as Watt remained silent. I can't operate on inadequate information, he said. I must, therefore, resign the assignment to search for Bill Doon. Instead, I will now look into the tax watchers. You will not, Watt snapped. McKee forced himself not to look at the design he had drawn on the desktop. The next few moments were the critical ones. You'd better have a legal reason for that refusal, McKee said. Watt swiveled sideways in his chair, glanced at the screen view, then addressed himself to the side wall. The situation has become one of extreme delicacy, George. It's well known that you're one of our finest saboteurs. Save your oil for someone who needs it, McKee growled. Then I'll put it this way, Watt said, returning his gaze to McKee. The tax watchers in the last few days have posed a real threat to the Bureau. They've managed to convince a high court magistrate that they deserve the same immunity from our administrations that a... Well, public waterworks or a food processing plant might enjoy. The magistrate, Judge Edwin Dooley, invoked the public safety amendment. Our hands are tied. The slightest suspicion that we've disobeyed the injunction and... Watt drew a finger across his throat. Then I quit, McKee said. You'll do nothing of the kind! This TW outfit is trying to eliminate the Bureau, isn't it? McKee asked. I remember the oath I took just as well as you do. George, you couldn't be that much of a simpleton, Watt said. You quit, thinking that absolves the Bureau from responsibility for you. <laughs> that trick's as old as time. Then fire me, McKee said. I've no legal reason to fire you, George. Refusal to obey orders of a superior, McKee said. It wouldn't fool anybody, you dolt. McKee appeared to hesitate, said. Well, the public doesn't know the inner machinery of how we change the Bureau's command. Maybe it's time we opened up. George, before I could fire you, there'd have to be a reason so convincing that... Just forget it. McKee's eyes lifted until the eyes were mere slits. The crucial few moments had arrived. He had managed to smuggle a jacuzzi stim into this office past all of Watt's detectors, concealing the thing's detectable radiation core within an imitation of the lapel badge that bureau agents wore. In lieu of red tape... 
McKee said, and touched the badge with a finger, feeling the raised letters there. I-L-R-T. The touch focused the radiation core onto the metallic dust scattered over the desktop. Watt gripped the arms of the chair, studying McKee with a new look of wary tension. We are under legal injunction to keep hands off the tax watchers, Watt said. Anything that happens to those people or their project for scuttling us, even legitimate accidents, will be laid at our door. We must be able to defend ourselves. No one who has ever been connected with us dares fall under the slightest suspicion of complicity. How about a floor waxed to dangerous slickness in the path of one of their messengers? How about a door lock changed to delay? Nothing. McKee stared at his chief. Everything depended now on the man holding very still. He knew Watt wore detectors to warn him of concentrated beams of radiation, but this jacuzzi stem had been rigged to diffuse its charge off the metal dust. The men held themselves rigid in the stare-down until Watt began to wonder at the extreme stillness of McKee's body. The man was even holding his breath. McKee took a deep breath, stood up. I warn you, George, Watt said. Warn me? I can restrain you by physical means if it's necessary. Clint, old enemy, save your breath. What's done is done. A smile touched McKee's wide mouth. He turned, crossed to the room's only door, paused there, hand on knob. What have you done? Watt exploded. McKee continued to look at him. Watt's scalp began itching madly. He put a hand there, felt a long tangle of tendrils, they, they were lengthening under his fingers, growing out of his scalp, waving and writhing. A jacuzzi stem, Watt breathed. McKee let himself out, closed the door. Watt leaped out of his chair, raced to the door. Locked! He knew McKee and didn't try unlocking it. Frantically, Watt slapped a molecular dispersion wad against the door, dived through as the wad blasted. He landed in the outer hall, stared first one direction, then the other. The hall was empty. Watt sighed. The tendrils had stopped growing, but they were long enough now that he could see them writhing past his eyes. A rainbow mass of wrigglers, part of himself, and McKee with the original stem was the only one who could reverse the process, unless Watt were willing to spend an interminable time with the jacuzzi themselves. No, that was out of the question. Watt began assessing his position. The stem tendrils couldn't be removed surgically, couldn't be tied down or contained in any kind of disguise without endangering the person afflicted with them. Their presence would hamper him, too, during this critical time of trouble with the tax watchers. How could he appear in conferences and interviews with these things riding in their Medusa dance on his head? It would be laughable. He'd be an object of comedy. And McKee could stay out of the way until a case of exchangement was brought before the full cabinet, but no. Watt shook his head. This wasn't the kind of sabotage that required a change of command in the Bureau. This, uh, this was a gross thing. No subtlety to it. This was like a practical joke. Clownish. But McKee was noted for his clownish attitude, his irreverence for all the blundering self-importance of government. Have I been self-important? Watt wondered. In all honesty, he had to admit it. I'll have to submit my resignation today, he thought. Right after I fire McKee... One look at me and there'll be no doubt of why I did it. This is about as convincing a reason as you could find. Watt turned to his right, headed for the lab to see if they could help him bring this wriggling mass under control. The president will want me to stay at the helm until McKee makes his next move, Watt thought. I have to be able to function somehow. 
waited in the living room of the Akusian mansion with ill-concealed unease. Acus was the administrative planet for the Vulpecula region, an area of great wealth, and this room, high on a mountaintop, commanded a natural view to the southwest across lesser peaks and foothills misted in purple by a westering G3 sun. But McKee ignored the view, trying to watch all corners of the room at once. He had seen a fifth-gender panspecchi here, in company with the fourth-gender ego-holder. That could only mean the crash with its three dormants was nearby. By all accounts, this was a dangerous place for someone not protected by bonds of friendship and community of interest. The value of the panspecchi to the universal human society in which they participated was beyond question. What other species had such refined finesse in deciding when to hinder and when to help? Who else could send a key member of its group into circumstances of extreme peril without fear that the endangered one's knowledge would be lost? There was always a dormant to take up where the lost one had left off. Still, the Panspecchi did have their idiosyncrasies, and their hungers were at times bizarre. Ah, McKee. The voice, deep and masculine, came from his left. McKee whirled to study the figure that came through a door carved from a single artificial emerald of glittering creme de menthe colors. The speaker was humanoid, but with panspecchi multifaceted eyes. He appeared to be a tyrannic man, except for the blue-green eyes, of an indeterminate, well-preserved middle age. The body suggested a certain daintiness in its yellow tights and singlet. The head was squared in outline with close-cropped blonde hair, a fleshy chunk of nose, and a thick splash of mouth. Panthor Bolin here, the panspecchi said. You are welcome in my home, George McKee. McKee relaxed slightly. Panspecchi were noted for honoring hospitality once it was extended, provided the guest didn't violate their mores. I'm honored that you agreed to see me, McKee said. The honor is mine, Bolin said. We've long recognized you as a person whose understanding of the panspecchi is most subtle and penetrating. I've longed for the chance to have uninhibited conversation with you. And here you are. He indicated a chair dog against the wall to his right, snapped his fingers. The semi-sentient artifact glided to a position behind McKee. Please be seated. McKee, his caution re-alerted by Boland's reference to uninhibited conversation, sank into the chair dog, patting it until it assumed the contours he wanted. Boland took a chair dog facing him, leaving only about a meter separating their knees. Have your egos shared nearness before? McKee asked. You appeared to recognize me. Recognition goes deeper than ego, Bolin said. Do you wish to join identities and explore this question? McKee wet his lips with his tongue. This was delicate ground with the panspecchi, whose one ego moved somehow from member to member of the unit group, as they traversed their circle of being. I, um, not at this time, McKee said. Well spoken, Bolin said. Should you ever change your mind, my ego group would consider it a most signal honor. Yours is a strong identity, one we respect. I'm most honored, McKee said. He rubbed nervously at his jaw, 
Recognizing the dangers in this conversation, each pan-specchi group maintained a supremely jealous attitude of and about its wandering ego. The ego imbued the holder of it with a touchy sense of honor. Inquiries about it could be carried out only through such formula questions as McKee already had asked. Still, if this were a member of the pentarchal life circle containing the missing saboteur extraordinary Napoleon Bildoon, if it were, much would be explained. You're wondering if we really can communicate, Boland said. McKee nodded. The concept of humanity, Boland said, our term for it would translate approximately as calm sentiency, has been extended to encompass many different shapes life systems, and methods of mentation. And yet, we have never been sure about this question. It's one of the major reasons many of us have adopted your life shape and much of your metabolism. We wished to experience your strengths and your weaknesses. This helps, but is not an absolute solution. Weaknesses? McKee asked, suddenly wary. Uh-huh, Boland said. I see. To allay your suspicions, I will have translated for you soon one of our major works. One of the strongest sympathetic bonds we have with your species, for example, is the fact that we both originated as extremely vulnerable, surface-bound creatures whose most sophisticated defense came to be the social structure. I'll be most interested to see the translation, McKee said. Do you wish more amenities, or do you care to state your business now? Bolin asked. I was, um... Assigned to seek out a missing agent of our bureau, McKee said, to be certain no harm had befallen this um, agent. Your avoidance of gender is most refined, Boland said. I appreciate the delicacy of your position and your good taste. I will say this for now. The pan you seek is not, at this time, in need of your assistance. Your concern, however, is appreciated. It will be communicated to those upon whom it will have the most influence. It's a great relief to me, McKee said, and he wondered, what did he really mean by that? This thought elicited another, and McKee said, whenever I run into this problem of communication between species, I'm reminded of an old culture teaching story. Oh, Bolin registered polite curiosity. Two practitioners of the art of mental healing, so the story goes, passed each other every morning on their way to their respective offices. They knew each other, but weren't on intimate terms. One morning, as they approached each other, one of them turned to the other and said, Good morning. The one greeted failed to respond, but continued toward his office. Presently, though, he stopped, turned, and stared at the retreating back of the man who'd spoken, musing to himself. Now, what did he really mean by that? <laughs> Bolin began to chuckle, then laugh. His laughter grew louder and louder until he was holding his sides. It wasn't that funny, McKee thought. Bolin's laughter subsided. A very educational story, he said. I'm deeply indebted to you. This story shows your awareness of how important it is in communication that we be aware of the other's identity. Does it? McKee wondered. How's that? and McKee found himself caught up by his knowledge of how the pan could pass a single ego identity from individual to individual within the life circle group of five distinct protoplasmic units. He wondered how it felt when the ego holder gave up the identity to become the fifth gender, 
passing the ego spark to a newly matured unit from the crash. Did the fisk gender willingly become crash nurse and give itself up as a mysterious identity food for the three dormants in the crash? He wondered. I heard about what you did to Secretary of Sabotage Clinton Watt, Bolin said. The story of your dismissal from the service preceded you here. Yes, McKee said. That's why I'm here, too. You've penetrated to the fact that our pan community here on Acus is the heart of the Tax Watchers organization. It was very brave of you to walk right into our hands. I understand how much more courage it takes for your kind to face unit extinction than it does for our kind. Admirable. You are indeed a prize. McKee fought down a sensation of panic, reminding himself that the records he had left in his private locker of Bureau headquarters could be deciphered in time even if he did not return. Yes, Boland said, you wish to satisfy yourself that the ascension of a panspecchi to the head of your Bureau will pose no threat to other human species. This is understandable. McKee shook his head to clear it. Do you read minds? he demanded. Telepathy is not one of our accomplishments, Bolin said, his voice heavy with menace. I do hope that was a generalized question and in no way directed at the intimacies of my ego group. I felt that you were reading my mind, McKee said, tensing himself for defense. That was how I interpreted the question, Bolin said. Forgive my question. I should not have doubted your delicacy or your tact. You do hope to place a member in the job of Bureau Secretary, though, McKee said. Remarkable that you should have suspected it, Bolin said. How can you be sure our intention is not merely to destroy the Bureau? I'm not, McKee glanced around the room, regretting that he'd been forced to act alone. Where did we give ourselves away, Bolin mused. Let me remind you, McKee said, that I have accepted the hospitality you offered, and that I have not offended your mores. Most remarkable, Bolin said. In spite of all the temptations I offered, you have not offended our mores. This is true. You are an embarrassment. Indeed, you are. But perhaps you have a weapon, yes? McKee lifted a wavering shape from an inner pocket. Ah, the jacuzzi stim, Bolin said. Now let me see. Is that a weapon? McKee held the shape on his palm. It appeared flat at first, like a palm-sized sheet of pink paper. Gradually, the flatness grew a superimposed image of a tube laid on its surface, then another image of an S-curved spring that coiled and wound around the tube. Our species can control its shape to some extent, Bolin said. There's some question on whether I can consider this a weapon. McKee curled his fingers around the shape, squeezed, there came a pop, and fumaroles of purple light emerged between his fingers, accompanied by an odor of burnt sugar. Exit stem, McKee said. Now I'm completely defenseless, entirely dependent upon your hospitality. Ah, you're a tricky one, Bolin said. But have you no regard for Sir Clinton Watt? To him, the change you forced upon him is an affliction. You've destroyed the instrument that might have reversed the process. He can apply to the jacuzzi, McKee said, wondering why Bolin should concern himself over what. Ah, but they will ask your permission to intervene, Bolin said. They are so formal. Drafting their request should take at least three standard years. They will not take the slightest chance of offending you. And you, of course, cannot volunteer your permission without offending them. You know, they may even build a nerve image of you, a 
upon which to test their petition. You are not a callous person, McKee, in spite of your clownish poses. I had not realized how important this confrontation was to you. Since I'm completely at your mercy, McKee said, would you, would you try to stop me from leaving here? An interesting question, Bolin said. You have information I don't want revealed at this time. You're aware of this, naturally. Naturally. I find the Constitution a most wonderful document, Bolin said. The profound awareness of the individual's identity and its relationship to society as a whole. Of particular interest is the portion dealing with the Bureau of Sabotage. Those amendments recognizing that the Bureau itself might at times need a... adjustment. What's he driving at? McKee wondered. And he noted how Bolin squinted his eyes in thought, leaving only a thin line of faceted glitter. I shall speak now as chief officer of the tax watchers, Bolin said, reminding you that we are legally immune from sabotage. I found out what I wanted to know, McKee thought. Now, if I can only get out of here with it... Let us consider the training of saboteurs extraordinary, Bolin said. What do the trainees learn about the make-work and the feather-bedding elements in bureau activity? He's not going to trap me in a lie, McKee thought. We come right out and tell our trainees that one of our chief functions is to create jobs for the politicians to fill, he said. The more hands in the pie, the slower the mixing. You've heard that telling a falsehood to your host is a great breach of panspechi mores, I see, Bolin said. You understand, of course, that refusal to answer certain questions is interpreted as a falsehood. So I've been told, McKee said. Wonderful. And what are your trainees told about the foot-dragging and the monkey wrenches you throw into the path of legislation? I quote from the pertinent training brochure, McKee said, a major function of the Bureau is the slow passage of legislation. Magnificent. And what about the disputes and outright battles Bureau agents have been known to incite Strictly routine, McKee said. We're duty-bound to encourage the growth of anger in government wherever we can. It exposes the temperamental types, the ones who can't control themselves, who can't think on their feet. Ah, Bullen said. How entertaining. We keep entertainment value in mind, McKee admitted. We use drama and flamboyance wherever possible to keep our activities fascinating to the public. Flamboyant obstructionism. Bolin mused. Obstruction is a factor in strength, McKee said. Only the strongest surmount the obstructions to succeed in government. The strongest, or the most devious, which is more or less the same thing when it comes to government. How illuminating, Bolin said. He rubbed the backs of his hands, a pan-spetchy mannerism denoting satisfaction. Do you have special instructions regarding political parties? We stir up dissent between them, McKee said. Opposition tends to expose reality. That's one of our axioms. Would you characterize bureau agents as troublemakers? Of course. My parents were happy as the devil when I showed troublemaking tendencies at an early age. They knew there'd be a lucrative outlet for this when I grew up. They saw to it that I was channeled in the right directions all through school. Special classes in applied destruction, advanced irritation, anger one and two. Only the best teachers. You're suggesting the Bureau's an outlet for society's regular crop of troublemakers. Isn't that obvious? And troublemakers naturally call for the services of troubleshooters. That's an outlet for do-gooders. You have a check and balance system serving society. McKee waited, watching the panspechy, wondering if his answers had gone far enough. I speak as a tax watcher. You understand? Bullen asked. I understand. The public pays for this Bureau. 
In essence, the public is paying people to cause trouble. Isn't that what we do when we hire police, tax investigators and the like? McKee asked. A look of gloating satisfaction came over Boland's face. But these agencies operate for the greater good of humanity, he said. Before he begins training, McKee said, and his voice took on a solemn lecturing tone, the potential saboteur is shown the entire sordid record of history. The do-gooders succeeded once, long ago. They eliminated virtually all red tape from government. This great machine with its power over human lives slipped into high speed. It moved faster and faster. McKee's voice grew louder. Laws were conceived and passed in the same hour. Appropriations came and were gone in a fortnight. New bureaus flashed into existence for the most insubstantial reasons. McKee took a deep breath, realizing he'd put sincere emotional weight behind his words. Fascinating, Bullen said. Efficient government, eh? Efficient? McKee's voice was filled with outrage. It was like a great wheel thrown suddenly out of balance. The whole structure of government was in imminent danger of fragmenting before a handful of people, wise with hindsight, used measures of desperation and started what was called the Sabotage Corps. Ah, yes, I've heard about the Corps' violence. He's needling me, McKee thought, but found that honest anger helped now. All right, there was bloodshed and terrible destruction at the beginning, he said, but the big wheels were slowed. Government developed a controllable speed. Sabotage, Bullen sneered, in lieu of red tape. I needed that reminder, McKee thought. No task too small for sabotage, no task too large, McKee said. We keep the wheel turning slowly and smoothly. Some anonymous corpsman put it into words a long time ago. When in doubt, delay the big ones and speed the little ones. Would you say the tax watchers were a big one or a little one? Bullen asked, his voice mild. Big one, McKee said, and waited for Bullen to pounce. But the panspechi appeared amused. An unhappy answer. As it says in the Constitution, McKee said, the pursuit of unhappiness is an inalienable right of all humans. Trouble is as trouble does, Bullen said, and clapped his hands. Two panspechi in the uniforms of system police came through the creme de menthe emerald door. You heard? Bullen asked. We heard, one of the police said. Was he defending his bureau? Bullen asked. He was, the policeman said. You've seen the court order, Bullen said. It pains me because Sir McKee accepted the hospitality of my house, but he must be held incommunicado until he's needed in court. He's to be treated kindly, you understand. Is he really bent on destroying the bureau, McKee asked himself in sudden consternation? Do I have it figured wrong? You contend my words were sabotage, McKee asked. Clearly an attempt to sway the chief officer of the tax watchers from his avowed duties, Bullen said. He stood bowed. McKee lifted himself out of the chair dog, assumed an air of confidence he did not feel. He clasped his thick-fingered hands together and bowed low, a grandfather toad rising from the deep to give his benediction. In the words of the ancient proverb, he said, the righteous man lives deep within a cavern, and the sky appears to him as nothing but a small round hole. Wrapping himself in dignity, McKee allowed the police to escort him from the room. Behind him, Bolin gave voice to puzzlement. 
Now, what did he mean by that? Hello, that was the first third or so of The Tactful Saboteur, written by Frank Herbert in 1964, who's best known for his Dune series of books. Uh, with me to discuss The Tactful Saboteur today are my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our special guest, Ken Hollings. Now, before we tell you how the story ends, Ken or Mark, I don't particularly care which one, can you explain the pan specie, the this shape-shifting species? The story is is interestingly delicate about some of the aspects of them and insofar as they do appear in other novels about George X. Mackay and about the Bureau of Sabotage the central deal which is in fact the the big reveal in the as the story emerges is that they are a um a five-fold group of separate sort of bodies who are essentially for legal purposes and um metaphysical purposes a single person and uh that's the fact the biological fact which is is going to be pulled out at some length uh in the ensuing scenes which is largely the uh courtroom drama of Mackay being taken to court for having broken the injunction because, as the final bit of the story that you read um, states, the um, Panther Bolin declares that him just discussing this point is equivalent to so trying to sabotage the tax watch, <coughs> the which, tax is, which is prohibited. But, but before we get to the courtroom yeah. scene, there's, there's five uh, creatures all in the same family, all to the same person. Now, why? How does that work? What? I, well, it, as I say, it's it's not terribly clear because this is uh, a subject which is totally taboo for discussion as far as the panspecchi are concerned. But there but is a real answer to this there question. Is the, one of them is the kind of live guy who wanders around and talks to people and has consciousness. A secondary one seems to be the um, female who does the stuff that females do. But he gets suddenly unspecific and then there's three more who it really isn't clear what they do at all they just sort of wait to be switched on when the ego consciousness clicks around one to the next the next member the of next the five member who who then steps out into the world and is the roving ego who moves around and, the, and so the previous roving ego then becomes the sort of like i guess you were saying the female character that seems to be that seems to be how it works okay yeah. Okay, so, so let, Ken, what happens in the courtroom scene? I have actually read this story, and I'm still <laughs> not entirely sure what happens uh, in the courtroom scene, except that some kind of bloodless coup appears to have taken place, whereby, through the mechanism of this rather convoluted legal procedure, is it a trial, is it a hearing, we don't know, hmm. McKee, or Mackay, has, as it were, manoeuvred the existing boss out of the way and created a situation whereby the dominant ego of the pan specie cluster is ramped up as a possible new head of uh, the bureau for which uh, McKee works, which is um, the Bureau of Sabotage. The, the, the way, as, as I think has already been um explained in the story you've read the way um the new head 
takes over from the old head is by enacting an act of sabotage against the old head. And so far, we're led to believe that this is actually what Mackay has done yeah. to Clinton Watt by causing his um, head to sprout with rainbow Medusa tentacles, itchy rainbow Medusa tentacles. Um, but in fact, what emerges during the the, um, the trial is that the threat to the Bureau, which this missing agent, Napoleon Bildoon, who is a panspecchi, who has vanished, the threat he was exploring um, and investigating, the tax watchers, this is actually another act of sabotage by Bildoon himself. Who has, bec- who has become Bolin. Who, no, well, the, I mean, this is exactly the, the metaphysical in point. In the ring that, of Panspechidum. Uh, in legal terms and whatever terms is at issue, has he become Bolin? Because there are five form life force, uh, uh, life form, and in legal terms, they are actually counted as different people. And what has to be explored and undertaken to decide, it isn't actually decided by the end of the story, it gets to the point where an investigation and an inquiry is underway, is whether this move, this ego move, in this uh, obviously very alien life force, which half form, which has taken on human uh, aspect because they rather admire humans. Um, but they're really, really, really not human. And is this uh, roving ego aspect to the way they work, is that acceptable legally? And it turns out that Mankai is rather keen on this being... Um, a life form which gets to head the Bureau because their sensibility will suit its uh, extremely <laughs> unexpected um, remit. Yeah, yeah, and and, uh, and I want to get into that yeah. the, to the to the Bureau of, of Sabotage. But first, I just want to ask you what you thought of the story, Ken. What, what did you what did you make of it? Um, did you like it? I liked the idea. I liked the premise of it. I, I thought the writing was, was fairly unspectacular. Yeah. Um, I thought it would actually read very well as a kind of flowchart or, or spreadsheet um, because it seems to involve a certain number of multiple choice options that, that run through the, the kind of skein of the narrative. So you're constantly dealing with... Um, really seeing one aspect of a negotiation, you're actually seeing most of it through McKee or Mackay's uh, consciousness. So we we enter into a kind of internal dialogue with him, so we kind of know vaguely what's at stake uh, with each encounter he makes, first of all, with his existing uh, studio head, um, uh, Clifton Webb. Clinton Webb. What? I beg your pardon. Clifton Webb, of course, (laughs) was a very, very famous uh, Hollywood actor. um, LAUGHTER Clinton Watt, <laughs> and they have a little sort of barking match uh, over a table, which, considering the kind of alien quality of the premise, um, is is refreshingly kind of low in the number of moments or uh, where someone has to say, you don't need to remind me that, <laughs> and then proceeds to sort of give you a little bit of expositionary statement to, so that you know what's going on. It's, it's kind of refreshingly sort of devoid of these moments. Maybe it happens a couple of times and that's it for the whole story. So I kind of like I like Herbert for doing that. Yeah. Um, the actual sort of sprouting of the the rainbow Medusa tendrils <laughs> did actually remind me of uh, an episode of The Simpsons in which George H. Bush has a rainbow wig glued to his head. 
by Homer Simpson as an act of revenge, um, which kind of maybe coloured my reading of that scene a little bit. Um, well, he says, he says, you know, this isn't... This, this, this is isn't a particularly a, smart thing to do. No, this like isn't a serious, deep, profound mm. act of sabotage. Yeah. It's clownish. And then yeah. he thinks, oh, but but he is always kind of a clown. <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, I, I agree that I think that, that Herbert is in some ways quite a utilitarian writer. Mm. But I think he's he's a clever and a subtle thinker who has quite a, a flat uh, style of expression. And... It's it's such a funny balance, I think, because I think there's there's real kind of even I mean the other the other the two novels which spin off this same story have much more of a kind of space opera dimension to them, but they're still in some ways in this same territory where what's at stake, particularly in this story, is for a start it's all has to be developed in the exposition i mean it's not like a big threat that you can sort of grasp like the extermination of a galaxy or or something which you're immediately struck by from from standard kind of plots it's uh, i mean it's essentially who gets to be the boss of this this government department which you don't quite understand what its purpose is and that's kind of it that is what's at stake um and so it it's moving through the micropolitics of a society not at war with itself i mean reasonably at ease with itself with the slight multicultural complexities of the fact that humans include this uh manifestly non-human um species who require that they also be considered human partly because of the way they look and partly because the culture demands that they do they're they're you know they're voters too and uh and this is going to be the point where uh as they put it a non-tyrannic human gets to be the head of this department that the pan species will get to be head of the department and and there's a there's an issue there but it, it's it's uh it's a cultural issue rather than a big uh everyone go to war with everyone else issue it, it's going to cause unease and awkwardness and, th- and that's kind of the, the big issue at the end of the story mm. where the judge has to decide well Am I gonna am I gonna take this guy's word for it that yes, this was an act of sabotage and that this person counts as a person and can then become the secretary of of the Bureau of Sabotage? But there isn't even a huge amount of drama because by the end of the story everyone is pretty much on side and saying, Yeah, yeah. you know, we're all gonna agree that this is gonna happen. And and I think actually I mean I only really realised this rereading it this morning, but actually the remit of the department of the Bureau of Sabotage is to slow down the wheels. Yes. And it's never terribly clear why that's a good, why that's a, a good. Well, let, a let, me, let, good. Let, let me ask you about that. Did that remind, does the Bureau of Sabotage remind either of you of anything else? In, in a sort of jokey way, when it starts out, what it reminds me of is it's like uh, James Bond. He's, this is a department which has doesn't have a license to kill. In other words, a license outside the uh, civilized acts of states as they interact with each other. It has a license to really, really screw up other departments in government. So it's outside the the civilized behavior of government departments, and it's a kind of jokey. 
office level version of something like james bond i mean in, in i i think that's how the gag works at the beginning there's another movie that that, are, that it reminded me of which is the pink panther i don't know if you remember but inspector clouseau has uh, he hires an assistant named cato oh yeah right, to right. spring out at him unexpectedly at any moment, just to keep him on his toes. <laughs> Don't know if he was thinking about that at all. But He's mostly off his toes. I was, I was slightly puzzled by the way in which sabotage itself seems to have been transformed either historically over the course of, of, of human intergalactic progress or whether just in Herbert's own thinking, that there isn't actually any real you know, industrial age sabotage going in. There is no hurling of the shoe into, into the machine at any point. Um, and in fact, it... it, it their world seems to be a curiously depopulated one. I think for, for a story that's concerned about this, this, this multiform entity, we have very little evidence of, of families. I think there's, there's a passing reference. The judge has a wife that's referred to. Um, the, uh, our central character have parents or had parents at one point who obviously nurtured him in this, mm. in this strange ludic profession of, of causing mischief. Um, but... There's very, very few people there. You, you, it, it, you feel almost like you're looking into some kind of uh, sort of surrealist canvas. You know, it could be a Delvo painting or, or, an, or a late de Chirico. That it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very, very empty world. So it's not a very industrial world at all. No, it says at one point that, that uh, the, um, he, he's in the court and he's giving a sort of big speech. Mackay's giving a speech, I think. It might be the judge. Towards the the sort of broadcasting units and it says and um, the universe is listening and you do kind of think oh that's where the universe is it <laughs> the universe is like it's on the other side of that wall really honestly all of it um yes, because, yeah hmm. yes i mean it's a tiny number of people who are involved it's it's probably not more than half a dozen if you count the pan species one but the, yeah the, i mean there's no um there is no like blowing up of bridges or anything like that but but it's the uh, remit is to uh, slow down the bureaucracy because well, it's, to, it's kind of to create a bureaucracy as yeah. opposed to as opposed to things moving too fast. And, and the thing that I was going to say, what I actually realised rereading the story, I mean, and I've been reading this story since I was a kid. I love this story, and I've read it many times. But I only twigged this point because he does kind of repeat things, but it, he repeats things in a way to let you get the joke. He doesn't explain stuff, and it is that actually what the sabotage does is it introduces a necessary slow examination of the nature of pansexual sexuality into the record and that's what the slowing the wheels actually does instead of them because everyone to hand all these kind of big wigs the head of the bureau the president who's watching on tv the judge the guy who's appealing to become the next head and George X. Mackay, saboteur extraordinaire. They all agree that he should become the next head. But instead of them just sitting down and saying, okay, that's it, you know, rubber stamp on to the next business, what they do is they introduce this really complicated screw-up into their own argument. And the only people who introduce it are there. You know, they're all on stage. We don't meet... There's no one else who's caused any of this kind of wrinkle to happen. And they do that in order that the waiting world doesn't think hang on, something really dodgy happened there. They all were just talking to themselves and we weren't involved. Mm -hmm. So that those slowing the wheels in this instance actually allows or will allow the waiting universe mm -hmm. to understand that something dodgy isn't necessarily going on, that 
that the decision is kind of measured and can be explained and will be explored in both directions which uh, i mean another funny part of it is that the exploration basically means these two species feverishly discovering the sexual practices of the other one and obviously it's enormously important during bureaucratic uh, <laughs> job changes that 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 kind of thing be examined by the waiting world my first sort of uh counter proposal to that is if they just actually want to put a put put a spanner in the works why don't they just get these uh, what are they called the jacuzzi involved who apparently <laughs> are going to take two years just to draft a memo to, to, in, in order that the in order that clinton watt can actually have the medusa like tendrils removed from his head it's going to take this long to do that so th that would be my kind of immediate solution but it does seem to me that we're not actually talking about obstruction i think we're almost talking about government as a work of art this is why i think the flow chart the 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 uh, the spreadsheet would actually give you a better picture of what's going on and also i think it's it's indicative of a change of mood and a change of consciousness in this time 1964 you tell me this this story was right. written and it was published is that significant well, there was another trial in 1964. A guy called Jack Ruby was found guilty of shooting Lee Harvey Oswald to death in a, in a, in a passageway in front of TV cameras and news reporters in, uh, in Texas. And the Warren Commission report came out in 1964 as well. And then within two years, I think, what was it, sort of two in every three Americans thought that the Warren Commission report was actually a very dodgy proposition altogether. That in a weird kind of way, what Herbert is, is describing in a strange kind of trance-like way, if you like, unconscious way, is the beginning of government as, as conspiracy, that, which I think pretty much falls in with, with Mark's analysis of, of this kind of public trial taking place in which something seems to have been slipped past the consciousness of, the, of these depopulated viewers, these removed figures from the universe. Something I, I think, I mean, I think my, my argument is probably slightly the other way around, which is that I think he is suggesting that... The Bureau of Sabotage are the people who rescue something like the Warren Commission's project by doing the thing which is unconscionable in terms of the um, the protocols of running an inquiry like that. That the you know the the always the joke about when you want to when you want to cover up you set up an inquiry, yeah. and I think I think Herbert's kind of utopian um, joke at this point is in order for such an inquiry to actually get to the truth, or not to get to the truth, but to, to produce the um, the desired social effect, which is that everyone ag dis accepts that this is a true account of what went on, as opposed to the undesirable effect, which is that everyone reads the Warren Commission report and thinks, but, you know, this is full of, of contradictions and... and and they're ignoring all the really interesting uh, anomalies. So clearly it's a cover-up. That wasn't the result. That was the result they got, but it wasn't the result they wanted. And I think Herbert's uh, suggestion is that if you introduced actually into... If you introduced the... Um, is it called Mark Lane? The mm. Rush to Judgment? The mm. man who wrote Rush to Judgment, which mm. was a book which was replied to the Warren Commission saying that he'd been hurried through and there's all these anomalies. But if you actually brought him into... Uh, to be the sort of jester or goad or whatever into the machinery itself, it would produce the correct effect, which would make everyone say, OK, now we understand what went on. Yeah, um, 
um, nothing to see here um, and it wouldn't be this uh, cesspool of, of doubt and whatever in American society ever since. Well, there goes my theory of the pan Spachy as the lone gunman. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be like if we had a Bureau of Sabotage? Do you think it would be, would be a good idea? I already did. Yeah, you see, I think, I think one of the things that... I mean, Herbert essentially sets up in his various novels, including, you know, his most famous, Dune, he sets up things which are really sort of thought experiments for how a large-scale um, society might work mm-hmm. under a setup which is somewhat different to ours, but obviously always with specul- speculative fiction of any sort. When you're doing that, what you're doing is saying, well, let's look at ours from a strange angle and so i think he was very interested in how organizations operate and the difference between what they say they're doing and what they're actually doing and the sort of strong good effects from unexpected uh, elements which we are taught to assume are bad for example one of the things he was fascinated by was the fact that um, civilized societies tend to m- pull away from kind of zones of test and conflict, which are actually, as he argues, good for the society. It keeps them on their toes. And in fact, the the Guachin Court, which is mentioned in a kind of bafflingly, um, the Guachin are a frog-like people who Mackay somewhat resembles, and their society um, is based on the fact that they. The, the father cannibalizes the small children when they're just born, when they're basically tadpoles, they're a frog people. And he swims through the winnowing pool eating the ones which don't escape him. Wow. And the ones which do escape him grow up to be, you know, fine, strong, bright, clever future Gawachins. But the other ones, he eats. And they are regarded in the consentiency as a more civilized uh, culture than humans. They're, you know, they have higher technology and their aesthetics are much more advanced. One, one, one gets people. the impression, um, even looking at the way the, the, the court scene plays out, because there's an awful lot of, of dark emotion running through it. Their knuckles are going white. There's a moment when Mackay thinks that uh, he's going to have a weapon of some sort pulled on him for, mm. for making, a, making a suggestion that the, 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 the panspecie eco ego holder should um, sort of start to reveal something of their, of their life cycle. Yeah, it's, it's sort um, of an unspecified weapon, mm, but he, he, mm. he, he, he anticipates it. He knows it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there does seem to be a, very, a lot of dark emotion roiling under him. People are always growling at each other or, or, or hissing or, or you know, muttering darkly or you know, holding their head in their hands you know, in, in, in abject forms. And it does seem to be that there is a kind of suspicion of these emotions i mean that one of the one of the kind of m- more positive elements I, I i thought that the 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 bureau of sabotage um, had in within its remit was just the idea of winding politicians up i like the idea that they would actually just be there to annoy politicians yeah, that's right, yeah. to actually you know and so the ones that actually can't control their their temper get get you know, winnowed out get winnowed yes, out yeah. yeah no no i think this was hopefully I think, eaten uh, <laughs> i think this was something that that he was you know, fascinated by to the point of obsession, really, and it pretty much crops up in all of his novels in some form. I, I found it very un, not unsettling, but it, it kind of left me uneasy that we 
Are we dealing with a notion of taboo in this story, or are we just dealing with a heightened sense of privacy? Because it's very much presented as being a question of etiquette and privacy, mm-hmm. that you don't ask mm. uh, a, a pan you know, who's wearing the trousers tonight. <laughs> Um, you know, this is considered very, very bad form. But the way they, and I think it, go, it does go with these sort of dark emotions that are sort of just swirling under the surface. There's, there are these hints of some very, very dark practices going on during the, during the transfer of the ego. Um, now that you've told me that, that, um, that, that the, the frog beings of, of, another, <laughs> of another part of his story, you know, eat their young, um, I'm guessing maybe it's even worse than that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah we, 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 should, we should describe this a bit for the benefit of folks who haven't heard the whole story. Just at, at the end, McKee, Mackay, is, uh, in order to sort of help the judge understand that he feels the uh, panspecchi really should be considered as, as humans, needs to explain the actual sort of way that their ego gets transferred from one to the other. And this is equivalent to, he tells the judge, relating the most intimate details of your relationship with your wife here in open court. And that's why I'm afraid this guy might shoot us all or something because he's, his knuckles are white on the table. He's about to just kind of explode because of what's about to happen. And it's, it's putting this most private thing in a very pub, the most public forum imaginable. And it's interesting to me that, okay, these panspecchi are incredibly alien. It's very difficult to visualize, this, but their notions of public and private are actually exactly the same <laughs> as ours are. And it's kind of interesting that the panspecchi don't quite go that no. way. It did occur to me that, that 64 is also the year of the, the British invasion, you know, the, the, the all-male group. Mm, yeah, yeah. Is turning up on the American, you know, and the Beatlemania is is happening, and and there is that. Funnily enough, I think it does tie in with the with the with the the Kennedy conspiracy. That there was that observation made by 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 Mick Jagger that he thought that actually all the screaming that was going on, that was greeting these these groups as they were coming over, was just a way for you know Amer- America's collective unconsciousness to let out this huge kind of scream of grief and anger over what had happened. So the notion that suddenly there's this kind of mysterious four five headed entity that is actually threatening to upset the the you know the the the, the smooth running of an organization which is designed to prevent smooth running yeah um <laughs> I, it's interesting I, it's suggestive yeah, yeah absolutely yeah before we go, Ken, you've got a book coming out. I do indeed have a book coming out, Eli. Thank you for mentioning it. Um, <laughs> I knew you'd forget if I didn't say anything. Yeah, I'm totally going to forget. Um, it's Welcome to Mars, uh, Fantasies of Science in the Early American Century. It's based on the series of broadcasts I did on Resonance FM a couple of years ago, in which where I took the period from 1947 to 1959 year by year. And, and you uh, worked with a sound artist uh, doing yes, that, Yes, right? uh, Simon James, who uh, he was actually creating sort of soundscapes for me live in the studio. And I was working uh, without a script, just, just from notes, uh, extemporizing. And in the intervening um, couple of years, I've developed those performances, as it were, into, into a far more detailed account. Um, and it's coming out from Stranger Tractor Press in about a couple of months' time. A couple of months. Okay. Welcome to Mars. Ask for it by name. Thank you, Ken Hollings and Mark Sinker. Uh, next week, we'll be discussing Build Up Logically by Howard Schoenfeld. Thanks very much for listening.